I'm reading from the Gospel of Mark, verses 26 through 31. And this passage is right after the Passover meal where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And then it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mountain of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Almighty God, we ask that you will send your spirit so we can see and know your son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done on our behalf for us and feel it in our bones and in our souls. Amen. Amen. Today, I want to look at Peter's failure, a famous failure, the failure for which he is very well known. Thankfully, it's not the last word on him. If you've read the New Testament, you know some of the story and the fact that he wrote at least two epistles that we have, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. I'm not suggesting he wrote other ones, but we do know that we have those. And uh, this experience of Peter and his failure is a wonderful backdrop for a beautiful picture of the gospel. So that's why I want to focus on it. So in a sense, there's different kinds of sermons. Some look at a passage and really mine into that one verse. And there's other ones like this, which is more of like a tour guide of an amazing story. So let's dive in and kind of look at the texture of what's happening. Right after the Lord's Supper, we have this great moment of intimacy and significance. Jesus is talking about his impending death with his disciples. That's going to happen very soon, and he initiates this Lord's Supper. So they eat, they talk, they laugh, they drink, they sing a hymn. So this is a, a really good, positive, bonding time. And then he comes out of the blue and says... You're all going to fall away. You're all going to fail me. But I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again and I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. And this is remarkable to me because we know, many people know the entire story of Peter. Little nuggets like this get lost. What's so remarkable is that he's not exhorting them to faithfulness. He simply states the truth that you all will fall away. And then he states the truth about his faithfulness, despite their failure. He gives them grace before they fall away. Now we all know that if you need grace, you need it after you have fallen away. But he's actually giving them this kindness on the front end of their failure. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't warn them to persevere. That's because his focus is not on them. Thankfully... In this sense, it's not on us, either our faithfulness or our failure. His focus is on what he is about to do. He is about to die and rise again, to fulfill all scripture and for the redemption and reconciliation of the world to his father. 
Their failure didn't change his plan or his mind about them in the slightest. As a matter of fact, what stands out to me is that he's planning a reunion with them. You will fail me. I will rise and go before you and I'll see you in Galilee. So he's telling him, you're going to fail, but I'm going to be there. I'm going to reunite with you. He's planning the reunion after he knows they're going to fail. And what does Peter do with this grace? It seems like it was too much for him. He responds, even if they all will fail you, I'll be faithful. He makes his promises of faithfulness. And he nearly goes crazy at this point when he says, even if I have to die... I will not disown you. And then he causes a riot of self-righteousness. It says that they all joined in. And what's fascinating in the passage is how many times the word all shows up. You all will fail me. Peter says, even if they all do, I won't. And then they all, so the passage says, they all said likewise with Peter. They all chimed in. And so there's this riot of, we won't deny you, we won't deny you. No one's going to deny you. Unfortunately, that's what too many people have experienced as church or the Christian faith. A big chorus of promises of faithfulness as opposed to a declaration of the reality of our weakness and our need for our Savior. And we know this impulse. You sin, you repent, you promise to God, okay, this time I've learned my lesson. Things are really going to be different now. In the area of your life in which this plays out, it may be constant. It may be that thing that's been there for decades. Or it could change from day to day. However, that impulse to present to God your oath, this time it'll be different. Think about what that looks like for you. And Peter's words were just bravado. Jesus is arrested and Peter's watching from a distance. And I can imagine he's thinking, see, I'm not disowning him. I'm pretty close. I'm closer than anyone else, aren't I? So he's watching from a distance as things unfold. He's in the courtyard warming his hands. And a little servant girl connects him to Jesus as one of Jesus' disciples. In his only way out, besides saying the truth, in, in the story, he places himself under an oath. He goes, I call an oath that I do not know that man. As soon as he was doing that, Jesus was also under an oath before the authorities. They said, you're under an oath. Are you the Son of God? So at the same exact time, what's happening, Jesus is under oath, confessing, telling the truth about himself. I am the Son of God. And he opened his face to beatings. At the same exact time, Peter is putting himself under an oath to lie about who he knows, to hide his face from shame. And at that moment, we see in this text a picture of the mercy of the substitution in the gospel. The innocent Jesus gets punished while the guilty Peter is free. Jesus freely opens his face to mocking, beating, and spitting. And then the rooster crows, and Peter covers his face in shame. The Bible says in this story of Peter that at that moment, the, the translation is this, that Peter broke down and wept. That's about as good as you can get, but what we need to know is that broke down is the strongest word possible 
in the original language. What it means is he was unhinged. He lost it. It's the, the language of heaving in sorrow. He's groaning. He's on the ground. He threw himself on the ground, and he's a puddle of agony. And I imagine that if he had the words of Romans 7, this would have been the words to his groaning. What I don't want to do, I do. And what I want to do, I don't do. That's exactly his experience. I'll never disown you. Now I'm disowning. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Let's be honest. We have all found ourselves in a similar situation. Again, you have sinned, you have repented, you have promised to obey, and then you do it again, and it's exhausting. For me, right now, today, <laughs> I have two that just present themselves to me of how this is playing out for me. I haven't been with my little girls for three days, and I miss them terribly. But what's in the front of my mind is how my, my lack of patience and my desire just to be in control drives the way I talk to them. They're four and six, and I talk to them like I'm a drill sergeant half the time. And I don't want to do that. I love them like crazy, but that's my default mode. And I've also been enjoying the hospitality of the Advent and all the people. And when you meet a lot of people, the, side of the, 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 the back side of that is that you care a lot about how you come off. I've been thinking about myself and how I come off way too much. And so two things that are just front and center for me. Now those are um, specific kind of day-to-day -day specific examples, but I also have the other ones thinking, really, I'm doing that one again? The big ones that have just been my Achilles heel. Whatever it is, that's that, that sense of despair. Uh, you've sinned, you've repented. How is it playing out for you? Will I ever change? Who will deliver me? Is it your lust? Gluttony? Greed? Wrath? Envy? Pride? How does it play out for you? And the reason that Peter's story captures us is because it's so visceral, the level of reality of our faithlessness and the despair that comes with it. And we've all been here in some way. This is the naked truth about ourselves. This is when your sins make you feel lonely, ashamed, angry, unlovable, or condemned. This is when the urge for self-destruction rises. This is when all you want is a moment of peace and silence. This is when you look in the mirror and wonder, how did life get to this point? This is when you feel trapped in guilt or in your past failures or continuing in sin or the fear that someone will find you out. Oh, wretched one that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death the desperate heart that longs to be free from the despair needs something on which to hang on to. Where do you place your hope? In your oath that you won't do it again? I will not disown you this time. Or in something else. And what we need, we know our oaths are useless. What we need is a God who intervenes and can carve through the darkness. We need a God who doesn't leave us to our own devices. We need someone who can break in where we are powerless in ourselves to help ourselves. The best description 
that I can think of for what God does in these moments comes from Robert Louis Stevenson, the author of Treasure Island. And as a boy, he had a way with words back then when he was seven. His family lived on a hillside overlooking a small town. And one evening, he was just intrigued watching the lamplighters down in the valley lighting the torches throughout the streets. And his parents noticed that he was fascinated and kind of off in another world. And they said, what in the world are you staring at for so long out of that window? And the way he describes it was marvelous. With great excitement, he said, Mom, Dad, look at that man. He's punching holes in the darkness. It's a great phrase, a great description for what he's seeing. Punching holes in the darkness. But better than just a nice turn of a phrase... That's what we need when the darkness descends. Jesus came into the world to do miraculous deeds and do some great teaching, but his primary purpose was to punch great, big, gaping holes in the darkness that shrouds the world and that shrouds you. He punches holes in the darkness of condemnation. That's what the forgiveness of sins is. It's a punching through the condemnation. He punches holes in the darkness of our despair by pouring out the love of God into our hearts. He punches holes in the darkness of anxiety with his promise, Fear not, for I am with you, and I will go before you and see you in Galilee. Now watch how Jesus punches holes in the darkness for Peter. This is probably for me the two most important words in the Bible personally are found in the resurrection story in Mark. I just read Mark 14, but in Mark 16, 7, and it's very subtle but beautiful, on resurrection morning, when Jesus met the women at the tomb, he said, go and tell my disciples. And Peter that I've risen from the dead. I'm going to meet them in Galilee. Now he wasn't saying and Peter because he was no longer a disciple. That's how we would think about him. He disowned me. He's not in the discipleship team anymore. He said, go and tell my disciples, but especially you have to tell Peter. He's driving himself crazy in despair for his sin and his disobedience. If anyone needs to hear this, yes, the disciples, but especially Peter needs to hear this. And that's the promise for us. The very promise he gave, go and tell Peter that I'll meet them in Galilee. He's reminding them of the grace he gave them two chapters before. I told you I was going to meet you in Galilee, but make sure you tell Peter I'll see him in Galilee. This happened for me personally when I was 10. I uh, have a very loving mom and dad, and my dad was telling me that he loved me unconditionally. I didn't know what that meant. Um, I was 10, so I asked him. I knew it was good because we lived in Florida, and condition, air conditioning sounded similar, so I thought, really hot, air conditioning, whatever, dad. But he told me it loved, he loved me all the time, no matter what. When I was 10, I broke into our next-door neighbor's house when they were trying to sell it. And I don't know why I did this, but I stuffed off all the drains and turned on all the water faucets. And I watched the water pour out of the sinks onto the floor. It was fascinating, but destructive. And they came over next door and asked my dad, Hey, we know Justin plays in the backyard. Did you, did you see anyone go into the house? Or ask him if he did. So my father asked me, Hey, someone destroyed their house that they're trying to sell and flooded it. 
did you see anyone go in? And so to my father who loves me unconditionally, I bit my tongue. When he asked me again, I finally said, no, I have no idea. And I sat around. I just got baptized just a few weeks before. And I'm sitting in bed thinking, why did I do that? Why am I lying to my dad? They told me I was a new creature. And this doesn't seem new at all. And I was worried. I was crying out to God every night. God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I have to confess apparently or so I'm not forgiven. Like, how can I be forgiven if I can't tell the truth? And I was, I felt under the condemnation. Well, a month later, the neighbor on the other side of the house came back from vacation. And they said, hey, whatever happened to the Holcomb kid for flooding the house? <laughs> they saw me go in. They thought everyone knew that I did it. So they matter-of-factly declared to all the neighborhood, what happened to the Holcomb kid? Well, the gig was up. I didn't know it. So my father brought me in from playing outside and said, hey, Justin, remember that flooding thing? Do you want to tell me anything else about that? Do you remember anything? At that point, I mean, I've been in this lie for a month. I was not about to, you know, tell the truth now. I dug in my heels said, no, Dad, I have no idea. He said, well, the next-door neighbor on the other side saw you go in. And I burst into tears. Not because I was worried. My, my dad was not a brutal disciplinarian. I broke into tears because it finally just cracked. I said, Dad, I've been asking God to forgive me every night since I've lied to you and done that. And I don't know if he has. And my dad, out of very pastoral wisdom, said, you've been asking God to forgive you. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, what should happen right now? I said, I think I'm going to get spanked, and I think I'm going to be grounded, and I'm not sure how much that costs, but I know it's a lot. And he said, I'm going to pay for it. Your sins are forgiven. Go outside and play. <laughs> that was the end, Peter, for me. I was thinking, wait a second, this is not what I deserve. What's happening here? But what he did was he realized that the condemnation was choking me to death, and he didn't want to see his son buried under that weight. And he also knew the pain of sin and forgiveness, and he wanted to give someone the gift of that and give his son. So go outside and play. Your sins are forgiven is what I needed in that moment. And what he did, some people, whenever they hear the story, think, that sounds like really sloppy love. What's going on with that? His overwhelming kindness to me didn't make me think that he was a sucker. He actually captured my loyalty. He made me more obedient. I was very eager when you receive that kind of love to respond in love. You are forgiven. Go outside and play. Go tell the disciples, but especially tell Peter. Wherever you are, whatever you have done, whatever has been done to you, he died for your sins and pain and suffering, and he has risen to new life to give you life, hope, peace, love, and grace. The law says to you that you have not continued in all that God requires of you, and you are cursed. The gospel says Christ has redeemed you from the curse by becoming the curse for you. The law says that you are a sinner and you are to be damned. The gospel says that Jesus came into the world not to condemn sinners but to save them and that whoever believes in him will not be condemned. The law says if you disown Jesus before others, he will disown you before his father. And the gospel says, I have risen. 
go tell the disciples, but especially tell Peter. And if this is true, the most important thing that we can do is be honest about our dependence before God on His mercy. That's why Romans 2, 4 says God's kindness leads to repentance. We're not groveling to get something. We're enjoying what we already have. We will always receive His mercy because all of God's no was poured out on Jesus. The God whose property is always to have mercy, we can say that about Him because all of the no that He has for sin, every drop of it was poured out on Jesus. He's not withholding a little bit of the no to give you and sprinkle on your head. All of the no, His no is exhausted on Christ on the cross. So all that is left is His yes and approval and amen, you are my child. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who punches holes in your darkness. And he is the almighty God whose property is always and only to have mercy for his children. Let's pray. Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen.